Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, in our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did. And we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. We make it look easy. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to discuss topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, after season one, I'm pretty sure we already have. (laughs) So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and take a look. Apparently, one in five people is affected by dyslexia. Did you know that? No. It's extremely common and actually represents 80 to 90% of all learning disabilities. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember last season? Was it last season with um, Carol Dimas, the education advocate? I remember specifically her calling out um, school refusal and dyslexia as like the two huge topics that she covers in her practice. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. So it got me thinking about it and doing a little more research. Did you know that Tom Cruise had dyslexia? I did not. Richard Branson? No. Walt Disney? Had no idea. Leonardo da Vinci and even Albert Einstein all had or have dyslexia. And guess who else? Who? Luke Johnsos, my my late father. Really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, he flunked fourth grade. <laughs> But he he spent his entire life reversing letters and and you know he had to he, but he compensated. He did. Wow, I never knew that. Yep. You would never in a conversation like you just. No, he was a great listener. He yes, he was. Yes, he'd, hold, he'd grab my forearm, be like, and talk. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Um, Well, according to the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity, dyslexic children and adults struggle to read fluently, uh, spell words correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and even learning a second language can be hard. That makes total sense because learning a second language is hard even yeah. without. Yeah. Yeah. Without that challenge. Um, dyslexia is an unexpected difficulty in reading and an individual who has the intelligence to be a much better reader. Okay. So I imagine dyslexia is pretty frustrating when you know that you can do better. Or maybe you don't know that you can do better and you feel like you're not smart oh, yeah, enough. True. That right? could have opposite effect. While people with, uh, as I was reading at the Yale Center, with while people with dyslexia are slow readers, they often paradoxically are very fast and creative thinkers with strong reasoning abilities. Yeah, because they probably have to figure out coping mechanisms. On the fly? Yeah. Mm. Huh. Well, so to talk about dyslexia, we've brought in Leslie Murphy with Resourceful Academics. She is a certified, let me get, make sure I guess say this correctly, <laughs> a certified academic language practitioner and has worked with students for 15 years. She works with students with dyslexia or other reading disabilities, and she helps them to build reading, spelling, fluency, and writing. Leslie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So... What exactly, I kind of said it from the research I was doing, but what exactly is dyslexia? So dyslexia is a language-based learning disability that's neurological in origin. So it's how the brain is wired from birth. And um, it is reflected in difficulties with accurate and or fluent word recognition. 
and also by poor spelling and um, writing difficulties. Okay, so I, I kind of want to unpack this because uh, sure. you know I remember seeing some after-school special about you know the boy who flipped his B's and D's or whatever that you know um, I think they were trying to introduce the idea of dyslexia a long time ago. Um, but how does dyslexia present itself? What does it look like when it when a kid has this brain disorder? Are you talking about like um, early signs or um, in general? In general, so you know, how would you how would you be able to see that someone is dyslexic? Well, they would, um, you know, first and foremost, if there's a family history of dyslexia, that um, should be noted, um, and even not even just dyslexia, but also learning struggles, struggles with spelling, you know, because dyslexia has just recently um, been, you know, coming to the forefront of learning disabilities because there's more research now more than ever. Um, so it's it's more diagnosed now than it has been before. But, you know, in the preschool years, if you're looking at young children with a history of dyslexia in their family, if they have trouble learning um, common nursery rhymes. And um, also, you know, if you give a word, you know, rhyme with mat, a child would have difficulty finding a rhyming word. Any um, delayed areas of speech would also not necessarily raise a red flag because all children develop individually, but it's just something to know that if, if there is a history of dyslexia in the family and then also if they're having trouble learning the preschool concepts, then that's something to be noted. But once you get into the grade school years, you know, if they're having repeated trouble learning their letters, if they are having trouble reading fluently, if they're having trouble recognizing sight words. So it, there's a lot of signs to be looking out for when you're looking at a child that potentially has dyslexia. I think we we touched on this when we introduced the topic, but um, does dyslexia have anything to do with someone's intelligence? Not at all. On the spectrum of dyslexia, there are ranges of intelligence, so it, does, it has nothing to do with their intelligence. And actually, um, as you said earlier, with the amount of people that have dyslexia, their intelligence is often you know average to high average because they have this wiring of the brain that's so different from a neurotypical as something whose brain is neurotypical. So is that, would that be something considered twice exceptional? Because I remember talking about that with Carol Demas. Yes. So um, twice exceptional is when you have a high IQ, but you also have a learning disability. So some people with 2E, they call it 2E, is, um, they can be dyslexic and, and have a high intelligence, high IQ. I think Carol said it masks the intelligence sometimes or masks the dyslexia. If if a really intelligent kid is coping, then you might not be able to diagnose the kid until a certain level. Right. Well, you could always diagnose, but you might not, the, a child or a parent might not notice it until later because the child is highly intelligent and is using compensatory strategies to show that they can read and or comprehend what they're reading. Because a lot of children or adolescents with dyslexia have amazing ability to comprehend auditorily. But when it comes to reading, they have, they, that's where they struggle, especially in the later grades when the content gets a little bit more difficult. Sure. Can dyslexia, you said it's, it, it can be hereditary, like it's yes. notable. That, okay. So mm-hmm. can, can dyslexia be cured or do you always have it? You always have it, but it definitely can be remediated with proper intervention. That's where you come in. <laughs> yes. Yes. So the research shows that a multisensory technique, intervention, systematic structured intervention can really change the 
brain in how it's reading. Um, they do. They have done functional MRIs that shows certain areas of the brain that light up in a neurotypical brain are not lighting up in a dyslexic brain. So luckily, the brain is the plasticity of the brain, meaning it's it's able to to grow and to change. Um, can be affected by the proper intervention given to a child or adolescent with dyslexia. So they can actually see on the brain the lack of the lighting up, and so and then you guys can figure out ways to create different paths? Right. Yeah. The um, instruction, I'm certified in Orton-Gillingham, and they are the oldest methodology to teach children and adolescents with dyslexia how to read. So they have, over the years of research and um, development in this method, they have shown that using a systematic and sequential instruction with direct and explicit instruction really can change the brain so that a dyslexic brain can, you know, it's never going to be 100% like a neurotypical brain, but it will change and make reading easier for the dyslexic brain. That's a mouthful. <laughs> I know. It's a lot of information, but it really is fascinating to me that they've done so much research on dyslexia that they now know what works and what doesn't work for these kids with dyslexia. And, you know, to be quite honest, these multisensory research-based techniques that I use for my students with dyslexia can be used for all students in the classroom. So it wouldn't just benefit strictly dyslexic students. It would benefit every single student within a classroom within a school. Okay. What are some of the strategies? You, you know, you talked about multisensory, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, imagine what that looks like. And you know, I, I've read something about tapping. Tell, tell me how you teach kids these comp- compensatory skills. Yes. So multisensory just means that they're seeing, they're hearing, they're saying the letters and words in various ways. So the, it's, we call it visual, auditory, kinesthetic, and tactile. And one of the um, tactile approaches that I use that comes from various programs uh, is, you know, if you were going to have the child or you sound out the word cat, Uh you would tap the sounds on your finger. So the k sound would be between your um, pointer finger and your thumb. The a sound would be between your middle finger and your thumb. And the t sound would be between the ring finger and the thumb. So tapping out those sounds allows anyone to hear it, say it, and feel it. So they're getting three modalities of input to their brain to learn the sounds and to learn how to decode words. That's so cool. I'm doing it right now as you're talking about it. It really is unique. And I've, you know, I'm right now I'm working with a uh, kindergartner who came to me when he was in preschool. And for the first two weeks, I had to prompt him to do it. And now, you know, for the past four weeks, he's been doing it on its own on his own because he sees the benefit of tapping out the sounds. And it makes it a lot easier for his brain to recognize the individual sounds and then blend them together. So it truly is fascinating to me how well these multisensory techniques are helping dyslexic students learn. So it's reinforcing in the brain these, these pathways? Because we are sitting here tapping, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but when I do that, I'm feeling in my fingers. And that is, that is uh, telling my brain to remember it? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's making it easier for your brain to identify the sounds, hold on to them, and then blend them together to make the word. So, you know, ideally you'd be seeing the word cat in front of you. You'd be tapping out the sound, tapping and saying the sounds and seeing the letters. So, again, the, the brain is getting three levels of input, three modes of input um, to help it sound out the word and to blend the sounds together. Is that like when kids are learning to read, like in kindergarten, when they're taking their finger, like the teacher would have them put their finger and point at the word and follow along rather than just holding the book and reading it? 
Yeah, that's it's similar. It's very similar. Um, yes, I mean, because it's helping your eyes focus. Pointing to the word is helping your eyes focus on the word that you're reading instead of going all over the page, as well as um, being able to see the individual, individual sounds in the word. But it's not necessarily the kinesthetic where you're tapping out the sounds and feeling it as you're typing or okay. as you're reading. Okay. So I'm pretty sure with my dad, he pretty much had to... Um, treat every word as a sight word. Is that a strategy? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, a sight word is, is basically you're teaching your brain to memorize words. And that does work for the younger grades, but, you know, the learning to read is K through 3, and reading to learn is roughly like the end of third grade and beyond. So the memorizing sight words are going to help you when you're getting that repeated exposure to low-level words. But as soon as the content increases, you know, end of third grade and beyond, you can't rely on that strategy anymore because those words that you're reading are multisyllable and much larger than the sight words that you were reading and memorizing. And I see that a lot in my student, my older students who don't, who aren't diagnosed early. And, you know, they come to me fifth grade and beyond and they've memorized so many words that when it comes to multisyllable words, they have no way, no idea how to attack it. So when I get older students, I'm, you know, backtracking, trying to teach them the tapping out, the segmenting syllables, the blending the sounds so that they can read words that are going to be age appropriate with their current grade level and beyond. So you have to take a few steps back in order to make real progress. Right. Yeah. And they do say, you know, unless dyslexia is remediated by third grade, it's that much harder to play catch up when you get into the older grades. So early identification is key. Early identification and intervention is key to helping a dyslexic student feel successful in school. So I have a friend whose son was undiagnosed for years, and um, and I have another friend whose son actually was diagnosed early, but um, they each had to go sort of outside of the school to a special place for a screening that cost a lot of money. Is that the only option now? Well, it's not the only option. You know, first and foremost, I would recommend if you have, if a parent has concerns, I would trust your gut, number one. And then number two, go to the school and say, here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? And, you know, the school is going to, to their best ability, try to uh, see what's going on, maybe see what you're seeing, hopefully run, you know, some tests or some screeners to see if there is some struggle there. But a school cannot diagnose. So you do have to go outside of school to get an, a diagnosis. And the school is looking at a child compared to his or her peers. They're not really looking at the whole child individually. They're seeing how they function in school. Are their grades okay? You know, are there um, a school-wide assessments, you know, in the average range? So, you know, unfortunately, typically a school's averages are so wide that many students will fit into that average, especially, like we talked about earlier, dyslexic students who are so intelligent and have those comp- and most have those compensatory strategies to keep them in that average range. So so they fly you know, under the I, radar, and that's why it goes undetected? Right. That's why it goes undetected. And, you know, if, if it catches up to them in fourth and fifth grade, that's when their reading comprehension, you know, typically starts to go down. Their writing, expressive writing, becomes less because they're so focused on spelling and getting the words in the correct order that, you know, their expressive language is not coming out as a neurotypical child would. Okay. So what what special help or accommodations do school like let's say they've been evaluated, do schools then have to mitigate it and and take care of it? 
Well, if the school has recognized that there is um, a disability there and um, have gone through the process of evaluation, yes, they can give an IEP to the child, which gives goals for the school to work on with the child. Some of the schools lately have been incorporating these multisensory research-based reading programs that the state recognizes help these children with dyslexia. You know, some schools will give some pushback and, and say they can't provide that uh, program, but they'll provide a, a program that they think will benefit a child with dyslexia. Okay. But, but I do have a lot of parents that seek outside help on top of getting help in the school because it's that much more instruction that the child is getting. And hopefully the, goal, the end goal would be that the child would his, his or her dyslexia would be remediated faster with outside help and the school help than just inside school. And right. after that diagnosis is made, is, um, is therapy or treatment, is, is that covered by insurance? Unfortunately, I have not seen many insurance companies cover my help. You know, I have submitted, in my practice, I, I can submit a receipt to the parents and they could submit that to their insurance company to see if they can get some sort of reimbursement. But unfortunately, no, it's not typically covered. Just yeah. depends on the insurance you have. Sure. Is dyslexia more prevalent in boys or girls? They used to say that it was more prevalent in boys, but now they're finding with more um, diagnosis and um, review of records that it's 50-50 across the board. It's girls and boys. Okay. Uh, I've read before and, and heard stories that um, when it goes undetected, it can manifest itself in different ways, both at home and in the classroom. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I'm going to piggyback on what Carol Demas said about school refusal and um, that a child who is not feeling adequate with his or her peers. You know, children are very smart, and they observe the, children, sure. the other children around them. And if a dyslexic child has gone undiagnosed and is struggling, they'll see the struggles and they'll see that their peers are advancing and they're stuck. So that can bring their self-confidence completely down where they might not even want to try. And a teacher who doesn't recognize the signs of dyslexia and or see that the child might be struggling might say, oh, might label that child lazy. Whereas that child is just feeling so low about him or herself that he, doesn't, he or she doesn't want to try. So that's um, what I've seen where the, you know, my students who come to see me, sometimes their self-confidence is so low that it's hard to to get them to even try to read. Because um, they're defeated? They're yeah, just they like... feel defeated. And again, if it goes undetected longer in the upper grades, that... It's, um, years of, it's years of feeling that way. Years of low self-esteem compounded with possibly anxiety now about having to, to not be at their peer level. And, you know, when you're older, you're more self-conscious about how you compare to others. So Absolutely. that's why um, school refusal is also so prevalent, too, because, you know, some kids with the anxiety and depression... Um, on top of an undiagnosed learning disability or a later diagnosed learning bis- learning disability or feeling the struggles in school. And so they don't even want to go to school because they just feel so defeated. Yeah, middle school is hard enough, you know, without these kind of challenges. So I can only imagine uh, that compounding it and having to unpack all of that. Right. So, you know, I don't want to touch base real quick on what I said about the school and the accommodations because, you know, it's not just an IEP that's going to get them services. Um, there's also a 504 that can get them um, auditory books. So there's um, a great program called Learning Ally that if you have a diagnosis of dyslexia, 
they'll provide a free service of audiobooks that a school can download on the child's, because most schools right now have some form of technology. Sure. But they can have that um, auditory book to level the playing field and to help them read what the other, their neurotypical peers are reading on their own. So are they reading along, looking at the words and listening? Ideally, yes, because again, that goes back to the multisensory approach where they're they're looking at the words, they're seeing it, and they're hearing it. But again, some students just choose to listen to it, which, you know, again, the, the point of it is, is to get them to listen to the book and understand the book. So as long as you're getting them the same book as their peers, you don't want to argue with them and say that they should be listening and reading. Sure. So when Carol was involved, like when she was talking about dyslexia being a, a common um, thing that she's seeing, so that when you're investigating IEPs and 504s, that's so that you can get accommodations, like in the practical sense, in real life experience, is that so that, you know, if Johnny needs extra time taking a test because he's like his, he doesn't read as fast or something like that, then that is what those um, things are in place for, him to be able to take those tests? Absolutely, yes. You know, I've had a lot of students that I advocate for them where they need um, someone to read the text out loud to them, to read the questions so that they can understand it. Or they need um, extra time on the test. They need modified assignments, um, help with note-taking. You know, a lot of these students also have um, difficulty taking notes. So getting the notes ahead of time so they can follow along with the teacher and not have to worry about copying the notes from the board and spelling and all that is really helpful to these students. And, you know, I see, and a lot of people see um, accommodations as leveling the playing field. You know, a lot of, some people will say, oh, these accommodations are going to weaken them and make them not want to do work, but it's, it's giving them the tools that they need so that they feel adequate in their learning and equal to their peers who are neurotypically developed. Okay. Um, when I hear something, I don't remember it as well as when I see something or read something. Um, are there other ways or, 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 do, or do these kids just adapt because that's what they do? You know, partly is adapt. You know, another program that I work with um, teaches the child to visualize what he or she is reading and hearing, and it's called visualizing verbalizing. And it's a great skill to be able to have, whether you're reading a book or listening to a book, because if you're picturing, if you're making a movie, of, and a lot of us do this naturally, but if you've never been taught the skill, or you're so focused on decoding the words that the comprehension strategies aren't coming in, it's a, the visualizing, verbalizing is a great system to have that so that you're, re, you're visualizing what you're reading and you're not having to remember the specific words that you read. Instead, you're relying on your pictures to help with comprehension and answering the questions and be able to discuss what you just learned. And I think we all do that because have you ever read the book and then it's made into a movie and you're like, that's not what she looks like? Right. You know? <laughs> right. right. Uh, to be honest, you know, a lot of the, um, like I said earlier, the, ch- the children that are diagnosed later in life with dyslexia haven't had the reading comprehension strategies ingrained in their brain because they're so focused on getting through the passage that they even they haven't had time to think about what they're reading. So I see a lot of older children and adolescents for uh, reading comprehension and teaching them the strategies that they might have missed out on when they were younger and so focused on decoding. Is it ever too late to diagnose someone? It's never too late. No, you know, I've um, had questions from adults who say, well, I think I might have had it. You know, should I go get tested? You know, if there's no reason for adults to get tested because obviously he or she has compensated to get through life. But, you know, as far as children and adolescents, it's never too late because the more you know, the more you can do to help that child feel successful. 
Okay, this is a, this is maybe a stupid question. When when and I'm thinking about this while you're talking, when um when a student when you were talking about writing something off the board, like if the teacher was writing notes, so when they write, is there a, is there a breakdown from seeing it on the board and writing it on a piece of paper? You know, sometimes there is. There's a form of dyslexia called dysgraphia where um, the, the graphia in there is the writing part of it. And a child with dyslexia doesn't necessarily have dysgraphia, but they can go hand in hand. So the less moving, like the less like staring at the board than having to write it down and, you know, go back and forth, the better for a lot of these students with dyslexia or dysgraphia because then they're, they can focus on the notes in front of them versus having to listen, take notes, make sure it's written in the proper way, make sure the words make sense. So that is is really helpful with a lot of children that are diagnosed. Okay. Well, we talked about how frustrating, you know, with middle school and if, if you were a late, uh, if you discover it late, how do you suggest for parents listening to help build at home when they're not with a practitioner or someone helping them, how do you suggest building the self-esteem or keeping it if it isn't already totally dismantled? Uh, that's a great question. So I encourage you know, dyslexic or not, always, always, always parents should be reading to their kids. You know, I get that our schedules are busy and um, there's a lot of things to do, but if you could take time out of your day, no matter what age, to read to your child or read with your child, you know, they're learning the vocabulary, they're hearing how reading is supposed to be fluent and not so, you know, staggered or, you know, jagged when kids are learning how to read at a younger age. Um, But also, like, with the older grades, if the child has to read a chapter book, you know, popcorn reading where the parent might read a paragraph and then the child might read a paragraph, you know, just encouraging them, just showing them that reading can be fun. It doesn't always have to be exhausting, you know, and if, if, they, if the child is or adolescent is given audiobooks, you know, have the parents sit down and, and follow along and listen to that audiobook and engage in discussion with the child as, you know, maybe taking a pause in the break and asking them questions, you know, to model the metacognitive part of reading, that we think about what we're reading while we're reading. That Any kind sense. of engagement. You know, um, there, it's so hard for me to sit here and teach strategies, you know, on the podcast. But, again, trying to engage the child with reading and um, having them see it as not such a chore would be the first and for, first step, I would say, to take. Okay. And if I have a child who's dyslexic, you want to pump your children up. You want to, you want to build them up. You want to um, make them feel their best. So are there any benefits to being dyslexic? Yes, there's a great book out there called The Dyslexic Advantage. Um, And Tracy, the website that you mentioned, the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity, shows the strengths of these students with a dyslexic brain because it is wired differently so that they can see the world differently. You know, they're more of like a big picture and they need the meaning behind what they're learning to really understand it and 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 grow from it. And like you mentioned earlier with the celebrities and uh, Einstein, the big thinkers, the scientific people are, they're more capable of seeing things in a different light than a neurotypical brain. So, you know, a truly, you know, a lot of people say that dyslexia is a gift and it is, but it's just so hard to see it as a gift when you're in a classroom with your neurotypical peers who are learning and flourishing and you're feeling like you're not enough. Makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it's funny because I, Tracy and I just made <laughs> eye contact. My dad was a totally big picture guy, and and I think that has to do certainly with the dyslexia, but also the way he listened because he had to listen very intently, and right. um, and that also made him 
um, a, a wonderful storyteller because <laughs> he was a great storyteller. <laughs> so, um, so oh, that's great. I would call that a benefit. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many benefits. And the, the Dyslexia Advantage book um, really sh- shows the strengths of how wonderful dyslexia can be. But again, in the classroom, it's not, it's not as wonderful as it is pictured. We, we've mentioned the name Carol Demas a whole bunch. Um, she was one of the uh, episodes we did last season. Um, mm-hmm. I've worked with her. Education mm-hmm. advocate. Um, she talked about dyslexia becoming a growing challenge and noted its difficulty in her practice. Why, why do you think now... Is it just because we're noticing dyslexia or we, we have the, um, the tools in place to detect it? Is there more of it than there ever was or was it just never diagnosed before? I think we have the, the like I said, the functional MRIs, the research, the tools um, to diagnose it now. And unfortunately, where I'm seeing it the most is teacher training. So these teacher training programs when a teacher goes and gets her education and then gets certified in teaching, they don't have a lot of information on dyslexia. And if you think about it, a classroom teacher has, you know, approximately 20 to 30 students in her classroom, most likely she's going to have, she or he is going to have four to five students with some form of dyslexia in that classroom. So if she, she or he is not trained or skilled to identify the signs of dyslexia and identify it early enough, then that child is going to continue to struggle. So I think, you know, it comes down to a lot of teacher training and early identification um, signs that, you know, these teachers could be looking out for. And unfortunately, there are only a few accredited teacher training programs that are accredited by the Dyslexia um, Association sure. that give proper training to these teachers. Yeah, and they're, they're the first point of contact with the student, so you would want to arm them with all this information. Right. Because that would be your first, first go-to. Absolutely. You're right, and a lot of parents, you know, luckily trust the teachers and and hope that they're looking out for them. But again, you know, a teacher's job, they can only do so much. So that's why a parent, if there's a gut feeling um, that a parent has, the parent, in my mind, should be vigilant about finding answers and getting down to the bottom of why the child might not be flourishing like he or she should be. Sure. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Just like anything in life with parenting. (laughs) You just just trust your gut and go with it and say, no, no one's going to champion your kid more than you. Right, and seek out information. Again, like the schools are wonderful with what they do, and teachers, principals, they're great. But, you know, there are other people out there that have information that can be beneficial to the parent, whether it's someone like me or a neuropsychologist who can evaluate the child, a psychologist, the pediatrician. Mm-hmm. you know, seek out that information. Sure. Thank you so much, Leslie Murphy with Resourceful Academics. This has been really great. And considering that one in five people is affected by dyslexia, it's not uncommon. This is like right next door to you. Somewhere in your classroom, there's somebody that has this challenge. So, Right. Thank you for having me. Thank you so Thanks, much. Leslie. Thank you. So apparently dyslexia isn't uncommon and there's definitely ways to get help and be successful yeah the strategies she suggested with the tapping and the you know <laughs> we're both extra, sitting here doing that yes. funny. um i had no idea those things existed and i it gives me hope and i think the bottom line what you said was that um no one has your children's back more than you do Correct. so trust the gut yep and if one in five kids, like when she said one in five and in the classroom, think about it. And my kids' classrooms are about 28 kids in the right. class. Twenty. So there are kids in that class that are struggling with it and right. maybe going undiagnosed. So right. the sooner early detection is best. Yeah. And um, it's never too late. 
Exactly. That's what I t- that's what I took away from it. So we'd love to hear from listeners who've gone through the diagnostic process um, or how their kids have survived and thrived. Um, do you have any stories you want to share? Uh, if, if so, we want to hear from you. Yeah. Check out our Facebook page. You can give us a call at 331-704-0046. Or email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Uh, I need to check the email more more regularly. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Confession. Uh, This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Tracy Weiner. And I'm Ann Johnsos. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it.